Thank you, Brother Rice. And then the ladies um, before that, thank you for the, the singing, the choir. The choir was down in number with many gone, but still were able to, to sing and be a blessing. We appreciate very much that which goes into the service being a, a ministering blessing to us. Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter number 6. And one of the reasons, and maybe the reason why our faith would not be in vain is because, and only because, if it's placed in the right object. Our faith is placed in any other object other than Jesus Christ, it'll be in vain. But if it's placed in Jesus, it cannot be in vain. And that's why the object of our faith is so key and so vital. And while you're turning to Ephesians 6, I want to mention next Sunday night, right after the service, we're going to have briefly our marriage refresher launching over in the fellowship hall. And it's going to be very key, and I uh, look forward to this. We'll get this going. Then we'll present different uh, times in which would may work better for some schedules, and we'll um, present that next Sunday night. But we'll have a brief meeting after the, the evening service for our marriage refresher. And then something to uh, note on your calendar uh, is that our December meeting with Brother Jim Shetler, which would be a, a marriage, is going to be a marriage seminar that, that he does. He had a scheduling conflict and had to uh, back out, and we're going to have to reschedule. And so that's on our church calendar, and so if you have that, if you just want to make note of that, that that will not happen there in December. And then before then, we have our missions conference coming up, and we're going to talk about that in the next week or so, getting ready for that and what that entails and looking forward to that event of our missions revival conference. Ephesians chapter number six, we're continuing our study and journey in this matter of spiritual warfare. Everyone battles, but not everyone's battling the right enemy. And the key is knowing who the enemy is and, and battling in the right way. In Ephesians chapter 6, we've been reading the same portion of Scripture and hoping that it'll uh, stick in our minds and find its way to our heart. And we can latch on to this, especially in the times where the battle gets intense and we find ourselves under attack. So let's stand, if we could, and let's read beginning in verse number 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10. And we'll go to verse number 17, where we'll find our next and final piece of, of armor, official armor, as we are concluding this portion of the spiritual warfare journey. We're going to get into other aspects of it, and uh, we'll deal with praying always, the verse number 18, in our next time that we look at it. And then we're going to get into the specific strongholds. Because the spiritual battle is not just some mysterious mystical, but it latches itself to the strongholds in our life. And so we'll go through those various strongholds. Not the ones of those who are absent, but those of ours. Because um, we want to get victory in those areas. And so we want to be able to uh, see what God's Word has to say and apply it to those areas. Let's look at verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord... And in the power of his might. He says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all 
to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Last week we looked at the helmet of salvation. Tonight we want to look at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Thank you. Please be seated. This final piece of armor is unique because it's the only piece of armor that is offensive, that is an offensive weapon, not just something for defense, but it is something that in the arsenal of weaponry can be used in an offensive manner. Up to this point, all the equipment has been defensive. But now Paul puts forth a weapon that is primarily, though it can be used on the defense, it is primarily an offensive weapon. Everything else is designed to hold us steady from whatever the enemy throws our way that where he seeks to bring us down, especially when that in the evil day comes about. But after God outfits us for battle and we take unto ourselves that whole armor of God, we stand firm. He gives us an additional weapon with which you can attack and not just attack, but also advance. It's what he refers to as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I want us to look at the phrases here this evening. Look at, first of all, the sword. He says it's the sword. Now, Roman soldiers had two different types of swords for battle. One was a spatha, which is generally three feet long. It's your longer sword. And the other one would be a gladius. And that's a shorter sword, typically about 18 inches or a foot and foot and a half. So when Paul instructs God's people to take the sword of the Spirit, the word sword there is a Greek word that is makara. And that is meaning it's the gladius. It is the shorter sword. So this is not the kind of sword you might find the pirates using or the three musketeers using. No, this is the gladius. It's more like a dagger than a long sword because it was used for up close, in your face, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And most often is with a solitary opponent. The Roman soldier could use the gladius to deliver an unexpected yet deadly blow to his enemy because the enemy would not see it coming in that close proximity. It was double-edged in its blade. It was needle sharp at the point. And this allowed for a greater amount of damage at a very quick rate. I think what Paul is emphasizing is that this is a close and up and personal battle. When Paul instructs us to take the sword of the Spirit, he lets us know that the battle with the enemy will sometimes get very close. It moves from within your proximity to your doorstep and it gets right in your face. Satan doesn't want you to know that you are more than a conqueror. 
He doesn't want you to experience personal victory. So to discourage us, he brings his battle, especially your particular stronghold, as close to you as he possibly can. And oftentimes that means your battle is being waged not just around you, but within you, in your mind, your will, your emotions, your body. So we see the sword, but notice the phrase, it's the sword of the, what is it? That tells us that it belongs to the Holy Spirit himself. It's not your sword. It's not the church's sword. It's not the pastor's sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. In fact, it's the only weapon we're told that the Spirit uses in the spiritual realm. That's significant. It must be the Spirit of God that delivers the death blow to our enemy. The truth is, if it's you or I that's left to deliver the death blow, it's not going to have much effect. It's the Spirit who uses the sword in the heavenly places to deliver this death blow to our enemy. If you try it on your own, you try to, to do everything that, and follow all these recipes that you can concoct, you'll find yourself like Moses who leaned upon his own strength to deliver the children of Israel didn't work. Or like Peter who tried to deliver Jesus by cutting off the ear of one of the soldiers who come to arrest him. Listen, our authority for victory in the spiritual realm, it's rooted, it's grounded in God. One of the reasons I think many are losing their spiritual battles is that they have turned to human resources such as methodologies and philosophies and they're trying to do battle with someone that's not human. Remember the battles in the spiritual high heavenly realm with one who's not human. So to use human tactics isn't going to work. You're not going to find success. Paul did not say, take up your sword. He didn't say, take up your sword. He said, take the sword of the Spirit and do battle with it. When you choose a man-made method to go up against a spiritual battle, you completely undermine, you nullify the power in the fight. Listen to what James 1 and verse 20 says. For the wrath of man, that's the anger of man, it worketh not the righteousness of God. God says it different in Deuteronomy 32, 35. He says, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. And knowing this, Paul warns the Christians everywhere. He says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It's Romans 12, 19. He says, give place, notice there, give place, leave room. Means let go of your approach, of your way of dealing with the spiritual battles. Let go of your need to respond in your emotions. God never sanctions our approach. I, 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 our 
emotions are so unreliable, he doesn't sanction that kind of methodology. Rather, we're to take God's approach by aligning our emotions underneath his overarching rule and putting on his full armor. And then lastly, take unto us the sword of the spirit. See, Paul's telling the disciples of the Lord, don't take revenge when you're mistreated or misaligned or misused. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because God's promised to avenge his people. You don't have to, to do, you do, you, you take in your own, you correct, you, you make, you step into the place of God, you step into a place that's not your jurisdiction. What you're doing is you're pushing God out. Well, who in here would like to take God's place? No one would volunteer for that, but we do it whenever we take what James says and we, we adopt the wrath of man uh, pathway. We, we go about, we're going to deal with God's servants the way we think they ought to be dealt with. And God says, you've completely undermined me. You've taken my legs out from under me. You have nullified my power. Let me ask you, instead of... of relying upon the spirit of God, the, the spirit sword, where have you been putting your confidence? It's not been God. Not if you're pushing God out. Where has your confidence been placed? You can carry your Bible, read your Bible, but it's not the same as experiencing the power of the Bible. The simple truth is that if we're not seeing the enemy being sliced and diced as he ought, it's because we've not believed in the power of the dagger. There is so much power in the sword of the spirit that God gave it to us as the only piece of offensive weaponry in the entire armor. Maybe it's because this sword is the only offensive piece in the collection that is necessary. But we're not using it if we're not taking our confidence and placing it upon the Spirit's sword, the sword of the Spirit. Years ago, I came across a sermon that R.A. Torrey, R.A. Torrey was the first superintendent of Moody Bible Institute under D.L. Moody. And it was a sermon that he preached at D.L. Moody's funeral. He was asked to speak on why is it that God used D.L. Moody? So in 1923, R.A. Torrey, perhaps the closest associate with D.L. Moody, he spoke at the memorial service on why God used D.L. Moody. And in Bible college, you got a hold of this pamphlet as printed by the sword of the Lord, and it stirred me. And one of the things he said, he gave seven things, and he mentioned that Psalm 62 and verse 11, where it says, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. And Tory said, God does not give his power arbitrarily. It is true that he gives it to whomsoever he will, but he wills to give it on certain conditions as specified, revealed in the word of God. Seven things he mentioned, listen to it. Number one, God used D.L. Moody because he was a fully surrendered man. Number two, he was a man of prayer. Number three, he was a humble man. Number four, his entire freedom, he, he was entirely free from the love of money. Number five, his consuming passion for the salvation of the lost. 
And number six, he was definitely endued with power from on high. But I want to draw our attention to one other one. And that was, Ari Torrey said of Moody, he was a deep and practical student of the Bible. He said, Mr. Moody used to rise at about four o'clock in the morning to study the Bible. Moody said, if I'm going to get in any study, I have to get up before the other folks get up. And he would shut himself up in a remote room in his house alone with his God and his Bible. R.A. Torrey said this, I'll never forget the first night I spent in D.L. Moody's home. He invited me to take the superintendency of the Bible Institute. I'd already begun my work as I was on uh, my way to some city in the east to preside over the International Christian Workers Convention. Well, Moody said, just as soon as the convention is over, come up to Northville and, um, and, 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 and spend some time. And, and he said, so I got there. We were late into the night. Um, principals and teachers of the schools were there. But after they had all gone home, Mr. Moody and I talked about the problems a while longer. And he said, and it was very late when I got to bed that night. But it was very early the next morning, about five o'clock, I heard a gentle tap on my door. Then I heard Mr. Moody's voice whispering, Tori, are you up? And he says, I happen to be up. I do not always get up at that early hour, but I happen to be up that particular morning. He said, Tori, I want you to go somewhere with me. So I went down with Mr. Moody. And then I found out that he had already been up an hour or two in his room studying the word of God. Tori says, you can talk about power, but if you neglect the one book that God has given you as the one instrument through which he imparts and exercises his power, you'll not have it. You may read many books and go to many meetings, and you may have your all-night prayer meetings and pray for the power of the Holy Ghost, but unless you keep in constant and close association with the one book, the Bible, you will not have power. And if you ever had power, you will not maintain it except by the daily, earnest, intense study of that book. Listen to one other thing uh, Tory says in that sermon. 99 Christians in every 100 are merely playing at Bible study. And therefore, 99 Christians in every 100 are mere weaklings when they might be giants, both in their Christian life and in their service. Why God used D.L. Moody. One of the things I've enjoyed doing with Dad, Dr. Childs, is I, I have his books and, and, um, and, and I, I go and I look at many of his Bibles. He has his Bibles, but I look at his Bibles. And um, he always has a, a Schofield Bible. Except, that, is this one Schofield? Did you get a Schofield on this one? Um, they don't have one big enough is the problem print-wise, but he always would use Schofield. But I'd take that Bible and you could see where the hand print had, had become so ingrained into the leather of the Bible from the, the day after day spending time with God. I wasn't impacted simply by Dr. Childs' his lectures and his teaching and his preaching but I was impacted by the glow of Christ on his countenance after spending time like Moses in the presence of God. And so we see some things about this. We see it's a sword, and it's referring to that smaller aspect of the sword. It's an offensive, it's defensive, but it's offensive because sometimes this battle we're in, the strongholds in the fight, it gets rather personal. But it's the sword of the Spirit. 
It's not your sword. It's not mine. It's the Holy Spirit. But then notice this. Notice what the Bible says. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I remember one of the first times reading this. And I remember reading the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. I began to think, I wonder what is that sword of the Spirit? And then I kept reading and thought, oh, it tells me. <laughs> it's the Word of God. You know, I like when the Bible is its own commentary. It's the Word of God. So he's talking about something specific about this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is the Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So in order to fully comprehend what he's referring to as the Word of God, I think we need to consider the different Greek terms used for God's Word. Basically, three different usages, three different Greek terms when it's referring to the Bible. And I think this will help us because you find different ones used at different places. The first one is the Greek word graphe. The one that comes to my mind is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures, the Greek word graphe, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable, and it goes on to list. 2 Peter 1 verse 20 uses the word graphe. The word graphe just means, the Greek word is the writings of God, and it refers to the actual book of God. It's the word of God in written form. Uh, it refers to the Bible. You have your Bible? Hold up your Bible tonight. These 66 books that compose the, uh, the canon of Scripture, this is graphe. And this is what he's referring to. And so whether you have the graphe in your hand, on your shelf, coffee table beside your bed, your kitchen, dashboard of the car at work, tucked under your arm, when you walk into church, what you have is a book, but it's God's book. And the, the word of God in written form, it's graphe. And so when he talks about the sword of the spirit, he's not talking about graphe. There's, a, there's another, and by the way, when it's graphe, it's graphe regardless of whether you open it, read it, or use it. It's the word of God regardless of what we do with it. But then there's a second word, Greek word, and it's the word lagos. Lagos. Now, this refers to the message of the book. It's the message of graphe, or it's the meaning of the book. See, when you read your Bible, you attend your, your Sunday morning Bible fellowship, or you hear the sermon that explains the meaning of a text that's being referenced, you're experiencing, you're interacting with the Lagos. You started with the graphe, you open it up, and then you've progressed into logos. Logos is a very powerful word. In fact, John chapter 1 and verse 1, we are told in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is called the logos. In this passage, because Jesus was sent as God's messenger to present God to human beings and to embody his message to us. So graphe is the message that is written. Lagos is the message that is given. It's the meaning. Lagos is the understanding of the written record of stories, events, letters, etc. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 reveals to us the nature and function of Lagos. We know this one for the word of God. That's Lagos used there. It's quick meaning alive. It's powerful. 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm telling you, Lagos is powerful. Jesus is called Lagos. Here, Lagos is more than just words on a paper. According to Hebrews 4.12, it's alive. It's active. It's not that you open it up and you're the activity engaging with it. It is alive and active. The Lagos is a force with energy behind it given to accomplish a very specific goal. Now, in order to accomplish this goal, the writer of Hebrews likens it to, here it is, a sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Meaning that Lagos, the Word of God, can go deeper and further than anything made in the physical realm. Now, can you see even more so? I know we know these things, but can do these things kind of help with the mindset as to why our emphasis and our faith and our authority must be on the Word of God? Because only it can, it can go further than any program. It can go deeper than any methodology. And so everything that we do ought to be as the result and outflow of the Word of God. Lagos, it goes about the job of dividing up what makes your soul and your body. Your soul, that's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions, it's you. And what makes up the Spirit of God. So it goes in dividing between you and where the Spirit of God, the new man is placed. And this is necessary for living a life of victory because more often than not, your soul, you and I, we get in the way of the new man where the Spirit of God resides in our, in our hearts and within our lives. See, our personality, the way we were raised, your orientation, your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, often keeps God's presence, God's truth, and God's power from functioning freely in our life. And so the Word of God, it gets in and it divides it. It, it begins to expose, that's not of God, that's self. No, that's, that was you. That wasn't the Spirit of God. We often point to outside forces behind our struggles, but really most of the time our struggle is on the inside and so is the solution. If Jesus is alive and in you, he exists in that new man, in that inner realm of the new man, and the word of God is dividing between the two. God says he's provided the law of God sharper than any two-edged sword. To do the job of dividing the soul from the spirit, he's, what he's doing is he's clarifying truth within you. And God uses the understanding of the message to cut through your thoughts, your habits, your strongholds in order to remove that influence over you that we've been brought up with or wrong mindsets or wrong ways of thinking so the spirit can have free reign over you. See, Lagos is not only able to penetrate the invisible realm and divide between soul and spirit, but it also says in verse number 12 that it's a discerner. Lagos can discern, meaning it can judge. It can judge both the thoughts and intentions, intents of the heart. It doesn't simply address the action but it attends to the heart. It attends to the mind which propelled the action. It doesn't just say, hey, put the drink down. 
It doesn't just say, hey, forgive the person. It doesn't just say, turn off what you shouldn't be watching. No, it goes deeper and it actually focuses on the why behind that. So that if you can get the why rightly aligned underneath the truth and message of God, you won't have to tell yourself to put down the drink, forgive the person, or turn off that which displeases the Lord. No, you'll be motivated to stop these things because you have a great discerner in the living word of God. And then one other thing in Hebrews 4 and verse 13, the next verse, it goes on to tell us, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Simply put, whatever the logos, word, sees, God sees. The word of God opens you up to reveal all things within you. Likewise, as we meditate on fully um, understanding God's truth and allow the logos of God to penetrate, take root, deep root within us, it reveals our hearts to such a degree that we can discern right from wrong, truth from, from lie, and it penetrates us deeply, and it creates a powerful impact. That's logos. So graphe, the written Bible, those 66 books that we have. Logos is the meaning, it's the message behind it. And there's a third one, a third Greek word, it's rhema. And that's the word that we have here in... Um, it being emphasized. Rhema simply means utterance, spoken word, or what has been declared. Graphe again is the written word. Lagos is the message of the written word. Rhema is the specific declaration concerning the message of the written word. I've mentioned this before. I think it's just a good picture, Bible picture of this. Peter there in the boat, Jesus walking on water, Jesus is Lagos. And he speaks one word to Peter, come, Rhema. And Peter put his confidence in what Jesus Lagos spoke, Rhema. And God did the miraculous. See, a person can have a Bible factory and publish thousands of Bibles every day, but never have the power of the sword of the Spirit. A person can have great understanding of the message. You can actually teach the Bible but still not utilize the power of the sword against the enemy. You see, the sword of the Spirit specifically refers to the rhema of God. The rhema of God is our one offensive weapon which is able to plunge quickly into the enemy and draw blood. And the reason so many Christians are living defeated lives is that they have yet to graduate from graphe, having a Bible, to lagos, getting the meaning of it, to rhema, getting a hold of the specific application of truth for their given area. Some Christians haven't moved past Grafe. Bringing your Bible to church isn't the same thing as using the sword of the Spirit. It's just a book until you open it, read it, and hear God's Spirit teach you, speak to you through it. Like what the psalmist said, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Is that your prayer? Why don't you pray that every time you go to open the Bible, every time you come in to listen to truth, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy laws. Have you ever um, looked at the Bible, read the Bible, spent time with God, 
heard the Bible preached and you felt like, I didn't get anything wonderful out of it. Why don't we try asking God to open our eyes that we would behold the wonderful things out of it. Other Christians live defeated lives because, well, some are just stuck in Grafe and others are stuck in Lagos land. They, they love the, the understanding and, and Bible studies. They take notes and they have some knowledge, but they haven't used what they've learned in spiritual warfare against the enemy. Coming to church, hearing a good sermon, even though the message may penetrate within you, is not enough when you're in close-up battle with the enemy. And in that evil day when it's been unleashed upon you. At times like that, you need rhema. You need the specific utterance of God for your specific situation. See, we sometimes give people a pass. Oh, you know, he's having a bad day. Oh, you know, they're going through a tough time. But here's what you find. God doesn't do that. Because he's given us something for every situation and scenario that is supernatural and divine. And on top of that, he's told us this. God's grace is sufficient. God's supernatural enabling is sufficient for anything and everything that you go through. I'm just simply saying what Paul is saying. You don't get a hold of this. You're going to remain in defeat. You need to hear God speaking to you. You need to take that truth straight to the heart of Satan and his demons. Most of us have had a rhema experience with the word of God, but maybe we didn't realize it. Have you ever read some passage in the Bible so many times over the years that you feel as if you know all there is to know about that verse or that passage. And then one day as you turn to one of those familiar passages, it's just like God marked it with a yellow highlighter and there was a word or there was a principle or a truth leapt off that page and spoke directly to you in that situation. I remember we were talking, um, Dr. Childs and I, not too long ago, and he was talking about a verse. He said, I've read that verse every, every year for the last 40, 50 years. And I never, never saw it like I saw it this past uh, day that I, that I spent time with God. Well, it's because Rhema, Rhema, a word of God that speaks to you out of his written word. God's word, spoken word, was powerful enough to completely change things in the beginning, bringing things into existence out of nothing. You feel, ever feel like your situation? This is nothing. I mean, it's something, but it's nothing that can, that can ever be profitable. There's no way this can ever be for my good. There's no way. Well, don't forget Genesis 1 and verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And on and on in the beginning of Genesis, we read that God said, and it was so. God said, and it happened. God's word is powerful. All God had to do was speak the word, and whatever he spoke, it came out. In other words, the spoken word, rhema, had the power within it to accomplish God's desire. The rhema was the spirit's dagger that God used to bring things into being. Now, how do we know that the Holy Spirit had something to do with God speaking things into existence? What Genesis 1 and verse 2 tells us. It says that when God got ready to create something, the Holy Spirit was hovering over it. 
And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This tells me that the Holy Spirit was positioned and ready to move just as soon as God said to move. Just waiting for the word. That's why it's important to study God's word. Let it saturate your soul. Submit yourself to it. Find the transformational power. And since it's so powerful, Satan knows that all he has to do is twist God's word a little bit and it'll become a dull sword, unable to carry out its purpose both as an internal sword, Lagos, and as an offensive weapon, Rhema. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that's exactly what Satan did. You remember? In Genesis chapter 3, Satan twisted God's word by questioning Eve. Did God really say that? And that was enough. He did this because he knew if he could mix up the word, he could reduce its power to defeat him. In fact, Satan loves it when you say things like, well, I think, or well, my opinion is, or my dad said, or my mom said, or my friends say, when it ought to be, thus saith the Lord. What God says. There's a reason the prophets in the valley of dry bones, in some pretty difficult situations, they would say, thus saith the Lord. It worked for God in Genesis 1. And Paul says, why don't you put it to work for you today? See, Satan loves to hear those words of, I'm relying upon what somebody else says because he knows there's no real power there. There's no power in what you think. There's no power in how you feel. There's no power in what your friends or family may say. Oh, it'll give you what you want. It'll give you that little band-aid or that little pacifier substitute for a moment. But what will happen is Satan will use it to his advantage and your disadvantage. He'll leave you alone. He'll let you collect that type of information through popular uh, speculation and opinion. He's not afraid of that at all. He'll let you gather all of your feeling information. But as soon as you start saying, God says. I'm, and then when you're, it's not just saying a phrase, but it's putting your, your reliance and confidence and dependence upon the authority of God's word. And you start jabbing that directly into his midsection. He has to start running. Satan cannot stand against the powerful force of the utterance of God. He cannot. A perfect example is found in the life of Jesus. God demonstrated that in Genesis 1. Jesus demonstrates that in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what's interesting to note to me is about this passage is that it tells us that God himself led Jesus straight into the face of the devil. Remember Job this morning, we just mentioned about him, that God recommended Job to Satan. You ever been on the dean's list in school? Some of you for other reasons than good reasons, but, but when it's good, it, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. And here, God says, I want you to see my servant, Job. He's, he's high on my list. Have you ever considered trying to try your tactics with him? And we know the story of Job to a certain degree. 
God had gone on the offense against Satan by leading Jesus to the devil. And Jesus responded by using the offensive tool, the sword of the Spirit, to overcome him. And in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, we read that Satan tempted Christ at his weakest point. And Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. So by the time of this encounter, well, he was hungry. In Luke 4 and verse 13, we read that Satan, he looks for opportune times. He looks for the season in which you'd be most vulnerable. He tried to capitalize on Christ's legitimate need for food by saying, command these stones to become bread. Jesus, however, responded by saying, it is written. It is written. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. See, by saying it is written and then using the full force of the word of God, Jesus didn't enter into, listen, a long debate. He didn't go into a long meeting or conversation or dialogue with Satan about the subject. No, he said it is written. Then he uses the full force of the word of God. Satan came at Jesus two more times, tempting him in a moment of physical weakness. But each time Jesus responded in, in the same way. It is written, followed by the full force and power of what the word said about the matter. Now, if the living word, Jesus, needed to use the rhema to, to deal and defeat the enemy, how much more should we be using the sword of the spirit, the rhema of God? Jesus embodied perfection in his thoughts and reasoning, but even he did not approach Satan based upon his own thoughts. He overcame Satan the same way God demonstrated it in Genesis 1 to bring nothing into something and the same way Paul tells us we can stand and stand and stand and have victory. See, the issue Jesus faced, it's legitimate. It was a legitimate need. He was hungry. He had a legitimate physical need. Satan did not twist Christ's need. Instead, he tried to twist the way Jesus went about meeting that need. Tempting Jesus to find fulfillment apart from God. I feel like most of the time when somebody comes in because of a, a, a trial or struggle, the need is legitimate. The problem is when we try to fulfill that need in an illegitimate fashion. Since we've been on this, think again, Galatians 4, Hagar, God rejected it. Well, God, here's a son, but that wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's time. It wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's method. And so Satan took a legitimate need and he tried to twist it. However, when he did that, how did Jesus respond? Well, he responded in a way we might describe today as Googling God's feeding program. He, is, he, he remembered Deuteronomy, the book that Jesus quoted more often than any other book, Deuteronomy 8, and he told Satan what God has to say about bread and about hunger. 
See, he had to have knowledge of the Bible. He had to be, well, how am I going to know which information for which time? You get into the Bible, God can lead you to what you need. He knows what's on the horizon. You say, well, what if my Bible reading has me over in the book of Judges, but what I need is somewhere else. God will take you wherever you need if you will stay saturated with his word and stay surrendered to the master of the word and you stay submitted to what he says. And after only three times, Satan going against Jesus and hearing Jesus say, it is written, and then giving the full force of what the word says about the matter, Satan left. Three strikes and he was out. See, don't let this lesson be wasted. If Christ, notice the screen, the divine man in battling Satan while here on earth did so with the sword of the word, how much more do we frail men and women need to wield the same sword if we are to be victorious? Some may be saying, Pastor, why won't the devil leave me alone? Why is he always up in my face? Let me answer your question with the question as well. Are you using the word of God to make him leave you alone? Satan can hang out with you all day and night, even while you read the Bible. If he knows that you're not going to submit yourself to it. What does James say? You deceive your own self. You're a deceived person. Why is it Satan leaving me alone? Because you're still not submitting to the very authority that Jesus submitted himself to, the very word of God. The sword of the spirit, it's your offensive weapon to advance against the enemy in the trials and battles he's brought upon you. I say it's time for some to take back the ground. Restore what has been lost to the deceptive strategies of Satan. And after putting on that full armor of God, use the sword of the Spirit to move forward against the enemy. And tell him he has got to get out of your way. Not because you say so, but because it is written. Remember Romans 8, 37. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Amen. Get on the offensive. Stop being on the defensive. Don't let the fight come to you. You go forward. One day an elderly man walked into a local lumber mill. He told the owner of the company that he wanted to come and work for him chopping down some trees. The owner took one look at the wrinkled old man and he laughed. He said, you're as old as dirt. <laughs> he said, what makes you think you have what it takes to work for me? The man said, just give me a chance. The old man replied, I know I can do this job. The owner was in a pleasant mood, so he decided to humor the old man by taking him out to the forest where a number of young men were chopping down trees. In a matter of hours, and to everyone's surprise, the old man chopped down more trees than all of the younger men. The owner's mouth fell open in amazement. He says, sir, where did you learn to chop down trees like that? The old man replied, have you ever heard of the Sahara Forest? You mean the Sahara Desert, asked the owner. No, I mean the Sahara Forest. That's what they called it before I got there. 
I want to tell you, when you learn to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as you go on the offensive against the enemy, seeking to destroy you, it doesn't matter how old you are or how weak you may seem. All you need to know is that the sword in your hand, the sword of the Spirit, is capable of doing more than you will ever need. And as we saw with Jesus in the wilderness, that sword, that sword will make the devil flee. God guarantees it. So let's grab it. Let's use it on our path to living in ultimate spiritual victory. Let's stand together, please.